Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. So welcome back everyone to a three-part series. So today we're going to dig into part two of our three-part series uh, with Dr. Trudy Taylor. And we're going to talk more about how inflammatory arthritis is are diagnosed. So there are many challenges, uh, obviously, diagnosing inflammatory arthritis. And I look at myself, I think about some of the serology and the, the you know, it's just like, oh, I'm, my, my background is really emergency. So I get into these, some of these serology and the immunology, immunology, sorry, big mouthful there. <laughs> and I just like, okay, what does this actually mean? So, so what are some of the common inflammatory markers that you use to diagnose inflammatory arthritis? And what are some of the pros and cons of these ma- markers? When I think about inflammatory markers, I think about markers that are markers of inflammation in the body. And so the most common ones that I would think of would be erythrocyte sedimentation rate, ESR, and Mm -hmm. C-reactive protein, CRP. You know, it's interesting because ESR has been around for ages. Mm -hmm. It's the older of the two. Um, It's a cheap test to do, but it does take manpower because it's literally just setting up a pipette and... um, putting the patient's anticoagulated blood sample in it and measuring how far the red blood cells settle in one hour. It's reported in millimeters per hour. You don't have to have fancy lab equipment to do it, although obviously it has to be done in a proper setting with proper pipettes and all of that that type of thing. The problem with ESR is it's an indirect measure of inflammation. You're not measuring inflammation. You're measuring a process that happens. So when inflammation happens, fibrinogen Um, is increased and released in the bloodstream and fibrinogen can affect the red blood cells and actually make them stick together. So that's RULO, which we learned way back in medical school. And sometimes we'll see on on, uh, our CBC and differential, you can see RULO formation is sometimes noted there. Um, And there are lots of different things that can cause RULO. Inflammation is one of them. But when red blood cells stick together, you can imagine a bigger clump of them is going to settle more quickly. And so that makes the ESR higher. So the number of millimeters that it settles within an hour is higher. And so, you know, pros and cons of that, it's it's an older test. There's lots of data out there over many years. It's cheap um, from a pro perspective. You don't need sophisticated lab equipment to do it. And, and it can be pretty fast. Like you're going to get results back within a little more than an hour, because it literally yeah. takes an hour to measure. The con- cons of that are, uh, you know, it does take manpower to do it. The timeline, and I don't mean the timeline of actually physically doing the test, but of when you're going to see changes in the bloodstream, it takes a little while for the fibrinogen to be released and the rouleau to form. And so it takes longer to see a rise in the ESR. It may take several days mm. um, and it takes longer for it to fall. And mm. so it's not, doesn't necessarily follow the timeline of the acute inflammation quite as well. And then there are so many factors that can affect the sedimentation rate in red blood cells that aren't related to inflammation that it can make it difficult to interpret. So age mm. um, makes it, the ESR rises steadily with age um, sex affects it. So it's higher in females than in males. BMI affects it. It's the ESR is higher with higher BMI. And then there are other proteins that can have a similar effect to fibrinogen. And one of the big ones that we think about are globulins and immunoglobulins. So we have lots of people out there who have like a monoclonal 
um, gammopathy of unknown significance or, mm. or may have, um, you know, other immunoglobulin issues that, that can make it look like they have a, a higher ESR. So there are issues that, that can uh, affect the ESR that can then make it difficult to interpret. So CRP is the other inflammatory uh, protein. It's just a protein that's produced in the liver in response to um, pro-inflammatory cytokines, mainly IL-6. Um, it does require lab equipment to measure it. So um, not every uh, small hospital is able to do a CRP. Um, and so it can be a little bit more um, expensive uh, to do. Um, but there are a lot of pros to it. One of the big pros in my mind is the timeline. It it has a doubling time and a decay time of about six hours. And so you're going to see a pretty quick rise and fall to, um, in response to the that inflammatory change. So you're going to see that happen quickly. And, and it's just more direct. And then as far as the cons, you know, aside from the requiring specific lab equipment, the other the, the only other big con that I see is that there are some very specific subsets of diseases where the CRP may not rise. Those, I think, for me in rheumatology, what, the classic one is lupus. Lupus mm -hmm. doesn't always get a CRP response because there are some of the inflammatory um, proteins like type 1 interferons that actually inhibit CRP production. You know, it's not a perfect test by any means, but it, it probably has more pros than cons than an ESR does in my mind. And so I think that's why you see our most places and labs in our province have gone to doing only one or the other. And if you order both, the, the lab will only do CRP, partly as a measure of trying to not overuse tests and, and minimize expense for something that would, two tests that could give you the exact same information. So if you had a choice between a, uh, so someone in a family practice office who is screening a patient, would you rather see the CRP done or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting how they're, how they're both done together. It's crazy. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the ANA and the rheumatoid factor? Absolutely. So um, those would be the kind of what, what we would think of as serologies. And the reason I don't put them in the same, lump them in the same category as, um, inflammatory markers are that they actually don't change when inflammation is active or not. So they're more like biomarkers. So they're just either there or they're not. Um, and they are antibodies. So rheumatoid factor is an IgM immunoglobulin usually that we measure um, to the FC portion of an IgG, but it's an auto autoantibody. Um, rheumatoid factor is present in at least 5% of the general population, which makes it difficult. It's not a great screening test because there would be such a high percentage of the general population that could have a positive rheumatoid factor. And in fact, the percentage of the population that have positive rheumatoid factor increases with age. And then the other piece of it that's important to know is rheumatoid factor, when people are first presenting with new onset inflammatory arthritis, even if they have a diet, if they do end up having a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, only a third of them will be rheumatoid factor positive. So that's very low. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Over the course of a year, you'll get seroconversion. And so by the end of a year, up to two thirds of people who have rheumatoid arthritis will be seropositive, will have a positive rheumatoid factor. 
And so a third of people with rheumatoid arthritis never have, never develop a rheumatoid factor. And so rheumatoid factor, while it can be helpful if it's there and you have the right clinical scenario, inflamed joints, that can be helpful. And, and the other place where it's helpful is it can be uh, aside from kind of confirming, yeah, what I thought clinically fits with the labs. And so that just helps solidify my diagnosis and that I'm on the right track. Um, the, the other piece where it's helpful is prognostication because mm. we know that people who have rheumatoid arthritis that are seropositive are more likely to have more severe and destructive disease. And so it's also helpful in that respect. It's one of the reasons that I love rheumatology. Um, really, your diagnosis comes down to your clinical assessment, your yeah. history and your physical exam. The blood work may be helpful, but it does not make a diagnosis for reasons I think I've, I've shown you as far as, you know, that percentage, there's a third of people who you literally just rely on your history and physical exam to make that diagnosis because their lab work isn't going to be positive. So okay. the ANA is another one that uh, is uh, nonspecific. So anti-nuclear antibody, it's present, you know, it's interesting because it depends on the study that you look at. Probably at a minimum, it's present in 5% of the general population. In some places, it's reported as high as 20% of the general population. So if you go back to thinking about what makes a good screening test, that is way too high a percentage to make that a good screening test. So even for someone who has joint pain, um, just all comers with joint pain, it's not a good screening test because it's not going to help you differentiate which one of those people have inflammatory causes of joint pain and which don't because there's such a high percentage of the general population that have anti-nuclear antibodies anyway. And so ANA is uh, anti-nuclear antibody, like I said, present in a high percentage of the population. Um, And it's seen more associated with connective tissue diseases. And those are the connective tissue diseases that are more associated with um, like systemic um, auto-inflammatory conditions like lupus or scleroderma or myositis where you get inflammation in the muscles um, or Sjogren's syndrome. So it's, it's think kind of more multi-system disease with that. Um, and uh, it, which one of those systems can be the joints. So it could be one of the presentations of inflammatory arthritis. But uh, again, you really want the right clinical picture of one of those diseases. And you questioning in your mind, oh, I think this person is presenting with um, potentially a connective tissue disease like lupus. I'm going to order the ANA instead of doing the ANA just as a screen for someone with joint pain um, that that may not even sound inflammatory in nature because it just makes it so difficult to interpret that. It also creates a lot of fear, you know, for patients because uh, because they can't, because what happens oftentimes with a primary care practitioner is that, okay, we've got a positive test here. The next step is to send you to a rheumatologist, but that can take a long time. And uh, sometimes it's not, not necessary, but it can actually create a lot of stress for patients, I find too. And we see Absolutely. that with some of these other conditions that we can do just broad screening. So we, we, we need to be more selective in, in terms of what we're using to screen patients. Um, I'm just thinking about some of the breast cancer literature and some of these earlier cancers that really mm-hmm. often never go on to progress to anything uh, scary, but it scares the crap out of people. <laughs> it definitely does. I see I see that happen all the time and patients come to be seen in clinic and they're literally vibrating because they're so nervous about their appointment. Yeah. 
they think they have this diagnosis. They've read a lot about like the absolute worst case scenario with this diet, you know, these diagnoses and it can be, it can create a lot of fear. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the uncertainty. Um, So when you're using your, uh, actually one of the things I'll just come back a little bit. Can you, when we talk about therapies, what's the difference between a biological and a immune therapy? Okay. Or is there any difference? Yeah. (laughs) um, So I guess I think when I think about therapies, these are would be kind of specific therapies for inflammatory types of arthritis. Um, so I think about uh, disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, DMARDs, right? Yeah. DMARDs are the, the actual medications that have an effect on the immune system, can help with symptoms, but the reason that they're called what they're called, disease-modifying, is that they actually change the course of the disease. And in this case, they can prevent damage from happening. And so... In that kind of bigger umbrella category of DMARDs, there are what we would call conventional DMARDs. Um, Those are the old mainstays that we have. So those are things like um, methotrexate, sulfasalazine, hydroxychloroquine, which has gotten a lot of airtime these days. (laughs) Unfortunately. Um, Yeah. Are some of your patients actually having difficulty accessing, accessing it? Not so far. Oh, um, and okay. hopefully it will stay that way. Uh, but, yeah. And we've been very trying to be very proactive both locally with our um, pharmacy, like with our provincial government and, and pharmacy group, pharmacy groups and uh, our infectious disease colleagues as long as, as well as rheumatology. And then even nationally, the Canadian Rheumatology Association has been very active um, in uh, working with you know, those same similar partners, but on a federal level to try and help prevent that yeah, that's shortage important. from happening. Cause it is a big oh, scare. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's okay. So those are the <laughs> conventional, they're non-bio, they're what we, we would call non-biologic DMARDs and they are immunomodulatory and some are meaning they can change the immune system, but they're not biologics. And so the name biologic comes from the fact that biologics are, derived by a biologic process. And so they're actually grown in cells. And most biologic therapies are antibodies. Um, And so they're very large, complex proteins that have a big 3D structure, right? They fold on on one another. And so we can't make those in in a lab. You can't just have a chemical reaction that forms a biologic, which is actually how a, a conventional DMARD is made or small molecule therapy is made. And a lot of our other medications that we use in medicine are made in that way, but biologics are grown. And that's where that term comes from. Okay. Um, and so, and, but the other thing I think that's, that's an important differentiator for biologics are most of the biologics are um, a bit more potent in how they suppress the immune system. So they, they do carry a bit of a higher risk of, of, um, infections because mm. they suppress okay. the immune system a bit more. Mm. That's that's a little bit of a generalization. It really does depend on what part of the immune system you're affecting, like what mm. what's your antibody yeah. to, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but but in general, that would be a kind of an important distinction. So the other, I guess the thing with bio the other piece with biologics I'll say is uh, you know, aside from the fact of how they're developed and where that kind of terminology comes from, because they're large, very large proteins, they cannot be taken by mouth. 
they're always given by either an injection under the skin or IV because the proteins are too big to be absorbed through the GI tract and to actually get into our, our systems and have their effect. The, and, and so would you lump the biological immune therapy in terms of one group? Biologic and immune therapy, did you say? Well, I'm just wondering, sometimes we'll hear people talk about biologicals and then they'll talk about, um, I guess what I'm thinking about is like uh, chemotherapies or things oh, do. I do, see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I wouldn't lump them into one group because a lot of chemotherapies are not biologics. They're not actually okay. grown. Some of them, some of the more like the check, some of the checkpoint inhibitors Okay. Um, and some are our, our biologics, but some are not. And so I think okay. it's hard to lump those all in together. Okay. How do you know, besides the clinical presentation, how do you decide the therapy is working? Is it based uh, all on symptom um, or you're looking at other, mar- other things? Oh, I think it's, um, well, it's very similar to the things that we look at when we're making the diagnosis, but most of it is based on symptoms and physical exam. Yeah. So you want to see... Um, the resolution of the symptoms that are related to inflammation. You want to see resolution of the signs of inflammation, so that swelling, heat, and uh, redness, if there was redness associated with it. And then we do we do follow along with blood work as well. So those markers of inflammation that we talked about can be helpful. So the ESR and the CRP, we would like to see those come down as we treat inflammation. It's, 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 it is complex. Um, You know, we, like we were talking about pain, when we talk about resolution of symptoms, sometimes people have pain for multiple different reasons. And so sometimes we don't see complete resolution of the patient's symptoms, because some of their symptoms are not related to the inflammation. And so that alone isn't an, an easy Mm-hmm. Um, marker to follow to see to look for response to therapy. Yeah, because uh, I mean, oftentimes you'll see patients where you see the trend shows that the inflammatory component seems to be responding to the therapy, but the pain experience has not changed for the patient. Right. And so, so when you when you see that happen, does that how do you approach that? Yeah, I kind of I think I take I want to take a step back and say okay. Why is there this discordance? Why, why am I seeing the inflammatory markers normalize, but the symptom that we were trying to treat did not improve? And so that could be for several different reasons. Inflammatory markers are not perfect, like we alluded to. And so I think the first thing is I would want to know, you know, I can't rely only on that blood test. Is there any evidence of inflammation? And that comes back to the physical exam. Um, can I find evidence of inflammation on my physical exam? Am I finding heat? Am I finding if joint effusion, that fluid swelling in a joint? And so if the exam did find active inflammation, that tells me that, you know, the, pa- the person may still have pain because I haven't completely controlled their inflammation and I need to adjust their treatment for inflammation, their DMARD therapy. If my exam doesn't find inflammation in the joint, then it makes me go down a different path and wonder, okay, I may have taken out one of the reasons, taken away one of the reasons that's causing pain, but there are obviously other things going on, other factors that are causing pain. And so uh, so sometimes there are concomitant illnesses that were pre-existing before the development of the inflammatory arthritis. So sometimes people have chronic pain and then 
subsequently develop an inflammatory arthritis on top of that, which can perpetuate their symptoms. But sometimes, and you spoke a little bit about this, sometimes the inflammatory arthritis could be the inciting event that, that then has caused this change in the perception of pain uh, that, that has caused the development of chronic pain. And so even when we take away that stimulus, that inflammation, the pain is still there. So it's kind of going down that pathway and trying yeah. to figure out what's happening there. Yeah, and I think it's I think what's so important because um, we see this a lot uh, in the emergency department is that patients will come in, they'll be getting therapies for not even, not specific even to rheumatology, but uh, it may have from another condition, but their pain is ongoing. And the important thing I think is to help them understand that what they feel is real, but it doesn't always mean dangerous or bad. It depends on how they're interpreting. But I, I clinically, what I try and do, and whether it's right or not, but I just, because I think it's overwhelming when, when you are experiencing pain that no matter what you do, you, it doesn't get better. So often patients will try many, many things. They tend to be very, very resilient about how they're mm -hmm. trying to keep themselves moving and, and managing it. But every time they try and move, so the more they do, the worse they get, the less they do, the worse they get. Until even simple maneuvers can cause significant pain is to help them to see almost two different processes. That yes, you have this condition, but you also have another condition that could be contributing. And how we approach the, the, the sensitization piece is going to be very different than how we approach the inflammatory. Um, but acknowledging that what they feel is real, but there can be other processes, I think because there's so much, they feel so guilty and so much shame that they're not getting better. They're not fitting into the model, right? It's uh, so true. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I, th I think it's healthcare providers. We need to, we do need, I mean, what you're saying is so true, Trudy, just stepping back and saying, you know what, here's what I know. So the fact, of, the fact that we're able to target that inflammation, that we're doing some good things in terms of the systemic effects, but we need to start looking at how the nervous system is responding because that's the one that really yeah. is part of that alarm system that is essential for the survival piece <laughs> yeah. and that your brain is still feeling like it's in survival mode, right? Exactly. So, and yeah. your behavior is, is doing that too. So it's trying to bring predictability and calm back uh, and, and they're just doing the best they can. And, and uh, I find this crew often incredibly resilient. So we did a podcast on COVID and resiliency. And I said, look, people who live with persistent pain are probably the most resilient people I've seen out there, even though they keep hitting roadblocks and things that they're, they tend to step back and say, okay, this is not working. I have to try something else. Yeah, it's so true. And I think that's something that, uh, that, that that's so important. If things aren't going the way that you expect them to, you gotta, you have to stop and step back and think, okay, what am what's what do I need to do differently here to yeah. to try and improve things? And I think you're you're absolutely right. I think the understanding that there are there are different mechanisms that are going along, and the management of those different mechanisms that can cause pain is very different. Um, and sometimes it means a shift in focus in how in how we're trying to manage things. Yeah, it's not something they're going to, you know, the the mistake that I feel, or, or it's not really a mistake, I mean, it's a trial and error, is that um, patients will often, so you may, uh, you know, and I'm thinking of one particular patient in particular who, a lady with uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, who would get a very, very effective response. This is a lady that I, I know quite well, and mm -hmm. she would feel so good. 
you know, that she would just start going at things really hard. And then right. she would get start getting these intense flare ups in her pain and then start to spiral down because, okay, I'm, it's not helping me at all, even though all the markers and the inflammatory aspect of the disease is better. What she's not doing is she's not approaching it from a chronic pain perspective that we need to help her pace the activity and right. come at it in a way that she can't push through it, you know, these kinds of yeah. things. But so I think, you know, once, once I said to her, no, I'm, we're going to separate it out. Here's the good thing about how your treatment is going with your inflammatory arthritis. So here's what we need to focus on for a little bit, because we do want you moving. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I mean, would you would you agree that one of the most important things, especially with pe- people with inflammatory and non-inflammatory diseases, they need to be moving? Um, it's so it's so true. And honestly, yeah. I think, you know, while we highlighted the differences in management, most of the differences in management of uh, inflammatory and non-inflammatory pain are related to pharmacotherapies to medication. The the non-pharmacologic measures are very similar. And uh, a lot of them have to do with movement, right? Moving, exercise, and and other things that we can do to kind of help um, cope with pain. Um, But yeah, movement, whether it's inflammatory or not, and there's actually great evidence to support that, it's important to be moving for many reasons. So we'll end here and pick it up next week in the third podcast, digging into how activity plays an essential role in how you live with your arthritis, whether inflammatory or non-inflammatory, as well as central sensitization. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.